The Democrats attempted to pass the For the People Voting Rights Bill, but it was defeated by Mitch McConnell and his Republican colleagues. At long last, that moment that we knew would never happen finally didn't. <laughs> Just the way we always thought it never would. <laughs> yeah. That's kind of right. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why I came I here. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it's still ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am. Stuck in the middle with you. Yep. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is The Bradcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., 98.7 in Santa Barbara, 93.7 in San Diego, 99.5 FM in Ridgecrest and China Lake. Also in California, in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN and Eureka's KGOE. In Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW. Lancaster, Pennsylvania's WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, and Rochester, New York's WRFZ. Got some interesting, some good news for folks in upstate New York today. Also down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ. In Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950 KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe every day on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, got news for you guys too. Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth. Five days a week, I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to another thrilling edition of the Bradcast. I believe that Wednesday was the penultimate decision day for the term at the uh, for this year's term at the U.S. Supreme Court as they handed down some four major rulings. Well, three, three and a half. I don't know. I'm happy to say <laughs> something like that. Yeah, something like that. I'm I'm happy to say, however, Desi Doyen, that the um, the decisions were not terrible. Well, that's a relief. So, uh, you know, th now that doesn't mean we won't get some very bad news on the final, the ultimate decision day this year on Friday. But today's news, no, it's not terrible. Which, frankly, is a victory uh, these days, no matter how you look at it, especially when it comes to the stolen and packed six to three GOP majority Supreme Court decisions on policing powers, union organizing rights, free speech rights for a high school cheerleader with a potty mouth are uh, among the opinions handed down today. We will discuss them all, as we do at this time of the year, with the great Mark Joseph Stern of Slate momentarily, along with another um, another question uh, I have about the court, which is probably the most important decision still to be made as this year's term comes to a close. That's coming up momentarily, but very quickly today. It was primary election day 
uh, local primary elections day in the great state of New York on Tuesday, most notably in New York City, where they're electing a new mayor this year and for the first time using a ranked choice voting system to do it. As I noted on yesterday's show, in a bit more detail than I will bother you with today, uh, (laughs) ranked choice voting can be very confusing for voters, for candidates, for the public in general to be able to oversee the complicated method for counting. Not exactly what we we need right now, in my personal opinion, given the trouble that we have had in recent years simply counting one plus one plus one. In our elections. But for now, in New York City, which is very Democratic leaning, the winner of Democratic primaries generally go on to win the general election. So the primary election is key. And whoever wins the mayoral Democratic primary will almost certainly become the next mayor of New York City. Right now in New York City, in that race, Eric Adams, a somewhat conservative black candidate running on a tough-on-crime message, is holding a fairly commanding lead, but he is still way under the 50% plus one that he would need to win outright in a ranked-choice election. That means after the initial round of tabulation is finished... They will then have to go to the person who finished in last place, remove them from the count, assign their second place choices, uh, the, uh, the, the choices that the voters made, since voters get to rank candidates in their preferred order from first to fifth place. So uh, remove that last place uh, candidate, take their second place choices and reassign them to the other candidates, do the tabulation again. Uh, until either one candidate does end up with 50% plus one or there are only two candidates left. Now, how the uh, public will be able to oversee that tabulation to determine if the computers are doing it correctly, I couldn't tell you. That is just one of the reasons why I am not a fan of ranked choice voting, or RCV as it is known. But as of now, with 83% of the vote tallied, Eric Adams is in the lead with almost 32% of the vote. He's followed by Maya Wiley with 22%. She's the progressive candidate endorsed by Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And then in third place, Catherine Garcia, another progressive with about 19 points. So uh, pretty close up there among the top three. Former Democratic Party presidential candidate Andrew Yang conceded on Tuesday night saying, quote, I'm not going to be the mayor of New York City based upon the numbers that have come in tonight. He's currently in fourth place in the first round of counting with almost 12 percent of the vote. Now, of course, he is a math fan, so maybe he knows what he's talking about when he says he's not going to be the mayor of New York. But the fact is, there's about 15 candidates in the race, all of whom presumably will have votes on their ballots also for second, third, fourth place choices to be reallocated to the other candidates. So, yeah, in an RCV contest, a fourth place winner in the first round can go on to win the whole thing, which is another one of the concerns that I have about RCV and the willingness of the public to accept the eventual winner as legitimate. In this case, officials say, given how close it all is and how long it will take to count over and over and over, 
and maybe over again. We are unlikely to even know who the winner is until some point next month. Hopefully, we will we will see. Uh, as I said yesterday, good luck, New York City. Gosh, and I hope nobody wants a recount. Yep. Oh, man. I hear you. <clears throat> Just saying. Okay, meanwhile, up in Buffalo, which is New York's second largest city, some very big news out of the primary elections on Tuesday. A socialist candidate defeated the city's four-term Democratic mayor in a major upset in the primary. India Walton beat Mayor Byron Brown 52% to 45%, with 100% of the precincts now reporting, according to AP, who called the race in the early hours of Wednesday morning. During an interview on Wednesday morning on MSNBC, the 39-year-old Walton when asked why she believes she won this upset victory, said, uh, I believe we won because we organized. We have a message of care, love, and hope that is resonant with working-class Buffalo. Uh, When asked what it means, what the message is for the city, state, and rest of the country that a socialist candidate, God forbid, will most likely be elected as the mayor of New York's Uh, New York State's second largest city. She explained the pandemic has proven that we can have social programs that prioritize people and working class families and we can make efforts to reduce childhood poverty and it works. Um, No one is returning their stimulus. We all enjoyed free health care and immunizations. Um, That that is socialism. That is our government stepping up to take care of its people. And that is what we should expect as Americans, as New Yorkers, and as Buffalonians. Pretty cool. Uh, Here is what she had to say. Even cooler, uh, here's what she had to say on Tuesday night during a phone call with her mother, I believe just after the race was called. Mommy! (laughs) I won! Mommy, I'm the mayor of Buffalo! Well, not (laughs) January, but yeah! (laughs) <laughs> so she's not yet the mayor of Buffalo, to be clear. She's not till sti- January. Cr- well, she's not even she still has to win a general election in True. November. True. And that is uh, uh, currently expected because Buffalo is, of course, very Democratic uh, leaning. And also because there is apparently no Republican who will be on the ballot. She's so, running unopposed by any Republican. By any Republican. Right. But stand by. She would become the first socialist mayor of any large American city since 1960 when Frank Zeidler left office in Milwaukee. But yes, her chances of winning are good. Buffalo has not had a Republican mayor since 1965. Its current mayor, Mayor Brown, is now the first incumbent Buffalo mayor to be unseated since 1961. Uh, Walton uh, has worked as a nurse, a community activist in Buffalo. She has never run for elected office. But Mayor Brown, 62 years old, did not concede on Tuesday night, saying that the race was too close to call. Now, 52-45 is not all that close to call. He's been the mayor since 2006. He was the uh, chair of the New York Democratic Party a member of the state legislature there. But the Buffalo News uh, is reporting that he is now weighing a write-in campaign against Walton in the general election, since there is no Republican candidate in that race. 
So we shall see what happens. This will be interesting to watch. Uh, Walton told MSNBC that if uh, if she is elected in the fall, her priority, her quote, priority is putting resources in neighborhoods and tackling the issue of poverty. Buffalo is the third poorest city of uh, of our size in the country, she said. It is unacceptable. So pretty cool. We'll watch what happens there. Uh, and uh, in some, uh, well, some other somewhat good-ish news, uh, just after we got off the air from our previous broadcast, the vote was in fact held in the U.S. Senate on whether to begin debate on the Democrats' sweeping elections, voting rights, and campaign finance reform bill <clears throat> known as the For the People Act. As we were uh, discussing yesterday on the show, the debate that was ongoing on the floor yesterday was a debate on whether to proceed to a debate. Now, uh, the good news after the vote on Tuesday, uh, as we had hoped yesterday, is that all 50 Democrats did vote to move forward with debate on that bill, which was uh, certainly not a given. It was not a sealed deal, given that West Virginia's Democratic Senator Joe Manchin has previously opposed the For the People Act. Uh, he has now come around with a compromise offer that the Democrats have said they would be uh, happy to put up uh, as as an amendment. But nonetheless, all even though you had all 50 Democrats united here, all 50 Republicans also stayed united. They voted against even debating the voting rights bill, which means there were not the 60 votes that would be needed to proceed to a debate under the Senate's arcane filibuster rules, meaning that all Democrats are on board, but everything otherwise stops right there, unless Manchin and Arizona's Kirsten Cinema, most notably, can be convinced somehow of the necessity of reforming the Senate filibuster rules to allow a simple majority vote to, you know, save American democracy as Republican lawmakers at the state level all over the country right now are passing measures to restrict and suppress the vote ahead of the 2022 midterms. So far, both Manchin and Cinema have opposed changes to the filibuster, but Democrats and progressives are hoping to change their minds somehow over the Independence Day recess over the next several weeks. Good luck. It can't hurt to let your senator know how you feel about this and whether you would like to see them reform the filibuster. You can get in touch with your senator by calling 202-224-3121. That's 202-224-3121. Just after the vote ended with the uh, majority in the Senate both winning and losing at the same time, somehow, thanks to the Jim Crow era relic Senate filibuster and impassioned, at least for him, Senate Ma uh, Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said, quote, I want to be clear about what just happened on the Senate floor. Every single Senate Republican just voted against starting debate, starting debate on legislation to protect Americans' voting rights. Once again, he said, the Senate, uh, Senate Republican minority has launched a partisan blockade of a pressing issue here in the United States Senate, an issue no less fundamental than the right to vote. 
That, by the way, after the Republicans uh, last used the filibuster just a few weeks ago to prevent a bipartisan commission, an evenly balanced bipartisan commission from looking into the Trump-incited insurrection at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. I wonder what they're up to, those Republicans. What is it they're afraid of here? Democrats who uh, did manage to hold together, they are now trying to encourage voting rights advocates to keep the faith somehow as they work to figure out how to move ahead at this point. Schumer uh, noted that the vote was, quote, the starting gate, not the finish line. Well, that's good. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi uh, stated that the Democrats, quote, will not be deterred. Because she warned the republic is, quote, at a crossroads. I agree. President Biden, for his part, slammed the GOP Senate filibuster as, quote, another attack on voting rights that is sadly not unprecedented. And he declared, quote, this fight is far from over. He said in a statement, I've been engaged in this work my whole career, and we are going to be ramping up our efforts to overcome again for the people for our very democracy. And it's all so remarkable because, of course, Republicans have been complaining and alleging that there was massive widespread fraud in the 2020 election, but God forbid they don't want to talk about anything to solve those potential problems that they allege happened. They could bring forward uh, all of these vote suppression tactics and launch them on a 50-state basis if they wanted to try to get it into this federal bill, maybe part of their agreement to work with Democrats to uh, get to that uh, 60 votes that wouldn't be needed to overcome the filibuster. But nope, they're not doing it. They are staying united um, and they want nothing to do with voting rights in this country. They are all in favor of voting restrictions, however. Anyway, we'll certainly be covering that story in the weeks ahead as it moves forward, as I hope it does. But it should be noted when thinking about the filibuster and the minority rule that it allows here, even though the Senate is currently 50-50 with Harris, Vice President Harris, breaking the tie to give the Democrats the majority, that minority is even much smaller than you may realize. According to Ari Berman of Mother Jones, the 50 Democratic senators represent 43 million more Americans than the 50 Republican senators. 43 million Americans more are represented by the Democrats than by the Republicans, even though they both have uh, 50 uh, senators each. He notes that because of the uh, 60-vote requirement to pass most legislation, just 41 Republican senators representing just 21 percent of the country can block the bill from moving forward, even though this bill in particular is supported by 68 percent of the public. Uh, Something has gone terribly wrong here. Uh, in this country. Uh, Hopefully we will, in fact, overcome. We will see in the weeks ahead. Uh, Okay, on to the uh, stolen U.S. Supreme Court today, uh, by the way, packed by Republicans who were not afraid to do away with the filibuster to do it when they sat three of Donald Trump's nominees on the highest court in the land by a simple majority vote because uh, they could not uh, get enough Democrats to overcome a filibuster. 
So uh, how are things going at the Supremes? Well, at least two out of three of the big rulings handed down today were not all that bad. Maybe even three of four, depending on how you count it. Mark Joseph Stern of Slate joins us next to explain all and to discuss the big decisions still to come from the court as the term ends. I'm Brad Friedman, and you are listening to the Bradcast, Smartly Done. Hey, this is Brad. Our nightmare election may be over, but new ones are on the way. Here at the Bradcast and bradblog.com, we fight for election integrity all year around, like no other media outlet in the nation. But of course, we need your help to help us remain on your public airwaves and completely independent. Please help us continue that fight over your public airwaves by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. Now don't be sad. Don't be sad. Cause two out of three. <laughs> well, actually, it's three out of four that ain't bad today, but the fourth opinion came in a bit later. I don't know how important it is. And it was after I had already decided to use that bumper music. So, you know, when you make those kind of decisions, you got to stick with it. And uh, we may not have time to cover that fourth one anyway today. So welcome back to the Bradcast. A bunch of big decisions were handed down. At least three, maybe four, on Wednesday by the U.S. Supreme Court, including on union organizing rights for farm workers, police powers to enter your home without a warrant, and a high school cheerleader's right to freedom of speech, including her use of the F-word on Snapchat. But what may be the biggest decision that many are expecting, or in the case of progressives, hoping for from the court this term, did not come today. As the court just about wraps up its term this year for the summer, for uh, the the first such term to include a fully stolen and, yes, GOP-packed 6-3 to Republican majority. Joining us now to make sense of all of that somehow is the great Mark Joseph Stern, who covers the law, the court system, election law, LGBTQ issues at Slate.com, and at this time of year for many years running now, has been kind enough to serve as the broadcast's go-to Supreme Court correspondent as the avalanche of rulings at term's end get uh, handed down before all of the justices go off for a really nice and long summer vacation that very few of the rest of us ever will get to enjoy. Oh, Mark Joseph Stern, welcome back, amigo. Is it my imagination, or is this year's term so far much less eventful much less uh, you know wrought than in previous uh, years prior not not that i'm bothered by that at all but is that my imagination i think you're right it's not as terrible as it could be at the same time uh it's not over yet and mm. i would not count your chickens yet because there are mm. still some major decisions coming down the uh, pike and no matter what happens we've still got next term with guns and abortion of course guns and abortion yep uh all right well we'll talk about what is still to come uh in a bit uh, shortly here but uh, before we get into some of the specific cases uh, handed down, and, and you write about this a bit in one of your pieces at, at Slate on the court's recent uh, 7-2 opinion upholding the constitutionality, constitutionality of Obamacare and in a unanimous decision allowing just a small amount 
of religious-based discrimination against same-sex couples by a Catholic group in Philadelphia. The decisions this year have not been sharply divided uh, down that six to three right wing versus liberal divide in in most cases that many people expected. And, and you seem to be crediting Chief Justice John Roberts for that. Yeah, and I think that the, there's enough credit to go around here. I think Chief Justice Roberts is in the driver's seat in some of these compromise decisions. But I think that uh, to some degree, Justices Kavanaugh and Barrett are willing to go along, and so are the liberal justices. And I think a lot of these decisions involve compromise on both sides. I think that some of them include some bitter pills for, for the left or the right to swallow. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, six justices are trying their best to duck the big issues and issue really small decisions that don't ruffle too many feathers. Yeah, it seems like we're seeing, uh, rather than a, a six to three divide constantly, uh, it's, it's sort of beginning to break down into a three to three to three divide with the three liberals and then uh, 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 John Roberts, Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett as the other three and then the the whoever's left uh, as the other three. And then they're sort of doing a lot of horse trading to try to get where Roberts seems to want them to be. I suspect we'll be talking more about that as this moves forward. But let's run through some of the opinions handed down on Wednesday from the high court in no particular order other than I'm going to hold the cheerleader and her use of the F word on Snapchat for last because, well, that is just common sense in the radio business, Mark. Um, (laughs) I promise to be good. Okay, all right, good. We'll hold that for last. Uh, in, in uh, So let's start here in Lang v. California. This is a case originating with a California Highway Patrol officer's pursuit of a vehicle for playing music too loud while driving on a quiet two-lane road, apparently, before the, uh, the officer ultimately entered the driver's home without a warrant and discovering in the bargain that he was also drunk. The Supreme Court ruled unanimously on Wednesday that police may not enter homes without a warrant for minor crimes, vacating, if I understand it, the man's DUI charge in in the bargain. What what happened here? Yeah, so this is a a very mixed decision. And what the court said uh, almost unanimously is that if the police are pursuing a fleeing misdemeanant, which means a person suspected of committing a misdemeanor, a Mm -hmm. minor crime, uh, and that person makes it to their home and runs inside their home, the police don't automatically, categorically have the power to barge into their home uh, and commit a search or a seizure, including an arrest. Um, And that's all the court said. Uh, So this does not decide a whole lot, and it won't even necessarily grant relief to the criminal defendant in this case. The lower courts are going to have to sort all of the details out. Uh, But what the court said is it really depends on the circumstances. There may be some situations where a person is suspected of committing a very serious misdemeanor, there are exigent circumstances for, for the police to barge into their home. Uh, but if in the run-of-the-mill case, for instance, someone playing music too loud, the police don't automatically have the authority to go into their house without first securing a warrant from a judge. And so, But they could go into the house without a warrant if... 
if it was a serious crime, for example, if he, he killed someone and, and was, uh, you know, ran back to his house. But here, didn't they didn't the cops put on their flashing lights and, and try to get the guy to pull over? Isn't that enough to uh, uh, if he refused to pull over? Isn't that enough to uh, allow the cops to go after him inside his own, in this case, his garage, I guess? So possibly in this case, but that's one of the funny things about this decision. The court didn't really say how this particular case will be decided. And like I said, I suspect that when this goes back down to the lower courts, that they'll rule against this individual, Mm. um, because all that the majority said was there's not an automatic allowance Mm -hmm. for police to go in if if they're pursuing a misdemeanor. But like you said, if they're pursuing someone who's suspected of committing a felony, then the rules change. And then as a general matter, the police can barge into the house, Hmm. even if they don't have a warrant. All right. Uh, Now, here we have uh, a case, Cedar Point Nursery versus Hasid, that does fall along those six to three right winger versus not right winger lines. And I must say, this one feels quite foreboding to me, Mark. Uh, You can tell me if I should feel that way or not. The GOP majority on the court blocked the ability to organize farm workers in California by preempting uh, union organizers from, uh, uh, well, preventing, I should say, uh, union organizers from entering farms to speak to workers during non-working hours. So before or after work or during lunch, uh, as previously allowed for a set number of days each year by a 50-year-old California law that was enacted after the uh, after a campaign by the legendary union organizer Cesar Chavez under the uh, premise here, the the, uh, court blocked it, that it allows organizers to appropriate private property. This writing for the majority, Chief Justice John Roberts said, quote, the regulation appropriates a right to physically invade really invade the grower's property and that the access regulation amounts to simple appropriation of private property. So, Mark, is it just me or does that seem a bit over the top? (laughs) Uh, That is very over the top. It's a completely new rule that did not exist before. Um, You know, for decades, actually centuries, the Supreme Court has viewed takings pretty narrowly and said that um, there's only a clear-cut issue when the government has permanently invaded somebody's property or rendered it totally useless, uh, you know, deprived it of all potential benefits, including economic benefits. And as you just hinted at, that's not what's happening here. You know, these union organizers only get very limited access to agricultural businesses mm-hmm. for uh, about three hours a day total during non-work hours for four 30-day periods throughout an entire year. Uh, and yet the Supreme Court, in a precedent-busting decision, has now declared that that is a taking uh, and that it is a, a invasion of a property owner's right to keep people out Uh, and that the California government or the unions will now have to pay these agricultural businesses uh, simply for the pleasure of briefly stepping onto their property to speak to workers. Wow. And and yet, uh, just this idea of uh, describing this as a taking, uh, appropriating uh, property, an invasion, 
Uh, And yet, you know, the court applies uh, this only to union organizers, as I understand it. They they stop short of uh, upending other laws that allow government officials to enter private property to inspect it or to enforce uh, uh, health and safety rules in all kinds, not just farms, but restaurants, toxic chemical sites. Roberts writes, under this framework, government health and safety inspection regimes will generally not constitute takings. So... Meeting with labor in a very limited fashion, that is somehow a taking. But when government workers do it, it is not. So I guess this only applies to union organizers who are barred here. Well, and how about civil rights laws that say businesses have to allow black people or women onto their property? Uh, when the government passes those laws, is it taking property from businesses uh, by allowing an invasion of their space? All of these questions flow from this decision, and Chief Justice John Roberts, in his majority opinion, tries to kind of bat them away and says, well, we think unions are different. That is what the court has done in its previous union-busting decisions, and I suppose we just have to hope that that's what the court will do again here, uh, because if you take this logic and apply it outside the union context, it looks like a vast range of just regular old health, safety, and economic policies are uh, subject to this rule, and the government's going to have to start shelling out billions, if not trillions, of dollars every year just for the pleasure of enforcing the law against private businesses. Well, uh, this, uh, well, I just hope there's no takings by women uh, of the Seven uh, Eleven down the street. How, how, <laughs> uh, how damaging is this ruling then for unions, particularly those representing, uh, in this case, uh, many low-income workers, many of whom do not speak English, many of whom will. I guess, not be able to be reached by uh, union organizers who, who may want to work with them. So how, how damaging is this for unions? And does this now apply in all 50 states or only in California? This applies in all 50 states, though not every state has a law like California's. Some certainly do, and in those states, this will be a devastating decision. Um, All of this briefing in the case established that farm workers are really not accessible uh, when they're not on the actual farm that they are working. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're often, as you said, migrants, often immigrants, do not speak English, are inaccessible, and many of them are shuttled back and forth to their homes by their employers, Uh uh, which keeps the unions from accessing them. And so in, in a lot of workplaces, if the unions can't talk to them on the farm, they can't talk to them, period. This is going to really kneecap uh, organized labor in the California agricultural business. And I guess part of the argument that was put forward by the uh, uh, by John Roberts here as well, they can be they can be reached via the Internet, on social media and, and other things like that. A lot of these folks do not have uh, it's another digital divide issue, but do not have Internet access, may not have an email address and all of that. Now, this uh, ruling follows on another anti-union ruling by the court back in 2018, blocking public sector unions ability to um, to take fees for collective bargaining from non-union workers. That overturned another long-standing, in that case, I think it was a 40-year precedent uh, that allowed unions to collect 
a limited fair share fee from workers who were not in the union, but who benefited from the terms of the contracts that unions negotiated, since by law, as I understand it, those terms must also apply to non-union workers. They benefited from it. And the court back in 2018 said, well, no, you, you can't take any money from those folks. You can't take any fees for that. This sort of seems to me, Mark, to be pretty clearly sort of a slow motion dismantling of union rights by the Roberts court. No? Is that an overstatement? I don't even think it's slow motion. I think it's happening pretty quickly right before our eyes, at least Mm. in terms of how this Supreme Court functions. You know, things don't happen that fast, but this has been a a lightning strike against unions, um, really going back to Justice Samuel Alito replacing uh, Justice Sandra Day O'Connor. You know, Alito despises unions, um, and so does Chief Justice Roberts, and uh, apparently so do the rest of the conservatives. It seems like they really draw the constitutional line at unions, and even though for years the court has said that unions themselves are a form of freedom of association, that unions themselves have free speech rights, according to this court, uh, any rights that unions might hold always have to be subsumed uh, to business owners and to anti-union activists. Infuriating and disturbing and troubling in a whole bunch of ways that they uh, just seem to regard unions, which is really just a collective of people, you know, as, as somehow separate from other collectives of people. Moving on to, I think, some better news here. And I got to say, this case, Mark, uh, regarding a high school cheerleader and her use of the F word on Snapchat, uh, of all of the cases handed down today, I don't know if this was the most important one, but it sure did get the most coverage, it seems, in the corporate media. Is it because it was the most important or because it involves a high school cheerleader and her use of the F word on Snapchat? I think it's because it's a funny case that involves the intersection of free speech and technology, and everybody's interested in that, as is this Supreme Court, which I suspect took this case in part because it is funny and fun. Okay. Well, and and we all know how, how they are known for their great senses of humor at the court, but in uh, Manahoy Area School District versus BL, we now know that BL is actually Brandy Levy, a 14-year-old high school freshman at the time, a ninth grader who was cut from the junior varsity cheerleading squad because when she didn't make varsity, she posted a photo of herself on Snapchat, uh, giving the finger and adding the text. And I had to be careful here on FCC radio, but F school, F softball, F cheer, F everything. And the Snapchat message would have otherwise disappeared in 24 hours, as they do. But someone took a screenshot. The cheerleading coaches saw it. She was suspended from cheerleading for a year, but not from school, before she sued in a First Amendment free speech case uh, decided correctly, I think, by an 8-to-1 court with the majority decision written by liberal Justice Stephen Breyer and being opposed only by Justice Clarence Thomas. So what did Breyer find here on behalf of an almost unanimous court, Mark? So Breyer found that the school cannot punish this particular student under the First Amendment, uh, that schools generally do have some authority to penalize speech that occurs off campus, 
but not nearly as much authority as schools have to penalize speech that occurs on campus. And still, even then, uh, schools have to tread lightly when regulating student speech, uh, and that mere profanity, as was at issue in this case, and mere criticism of a teacher or a coach is generally not enough to justify censorship or retaliation. So uh, the school was wrong to have uh, dropped her from the, 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 the squad, the cheerleading squad in this particular case. I'm sort of reminded, uh, of course, of the infamous bong hits for Jesus case from, what was it, about 15 years or so ago now? Yeah. In which a student held a sign across the street from a high school, so they weren't on the property. The sign said, bong hits for Jesus, whatever that meant. And the court held that that was disruptive to the school, and the administrators were allowed to punish the student. Why was that disruptive? And, and the court took the side of the school, whereas here they took the side of the student. That is a wonderful question. Oh, thank you. Uh, thank so you. A, a few distinctions here. First of all, in the Bong Hits for Jesus case, um, even though that wasn't technically at school, it was at a school-supervised event. They were actually in Alaska going to see the Olympic torch pass through the town. Uh, and so the Supreme Court applied the same standard that it would apply as if the case had, had all occurred on campus. Mm. Here, the uh, cheerleader student was at the Cocoa Hut, a local convenience store that was very much <laughs> off campus. She was not under uh, the authority of the school in any way. I think that was decisive. And I also think the speech at issue was decisive. You know, in, in the Bong Hits for Jesus case, Morris versus Frederick, the court really sounded like it doesn't it doesn't like drugs. It doesn't like marijuana. It found it, you know, it found the speech to be very offensive and found that advocacy for drugs is generally, uh, you know, sort of the taboo speech that can be banned on school property or during school events, whereas, you know, just criticizing a, a particular coach does not fall into this category of so taboo that it can be censored. Interesting. Bong hits for Jesus is offensive, but F school, F cheer, F softball, F everything. That's just fine. Very strange. But now, as much as it sounds to me uh, like the court ultimately did get this one right, in, in frankly what seems like a ridiculous case to begin with, uh, I'm almost surprised they took it. But here, the, the school district was actually supported by the Biden administration. Is that correct? Did, did they uh, ring in on behalf of the district here? Uh, the school district uh, here was not supported by the Biden administration, okay. I don't think. Okay. The, I may have misread that. But there really is an issue of concern here, as dumb as all of this sounds, and that is things like the ability for schools to discipline students for activity off campus that involves, for example, a student posting answers to a test online. Would, would, you know, would the school district be able to take action there? A player on a sports team criticizing a coach on Twitter for the, you know, the plays he called? Or much more seriously, as, as one of the uh, groups filed a brief here, uh, laws in a bunch of states that require schools to address off-campus harassment or bullying that might involve uh, targeting black classmates with photos of lynchings or, uh, as one of the groups noted, another cheerleader about two-hour drive away from this case uh, who ended up taking, on, uh, taking her own life 
after relentless online harassment. Again, that doesn't take place on school property or during school hours, but it clearly affects the school. Uh, is the court's ruling here in this case one of their, their very narrow cases that, that leaves those other questions for a separate case on another day? I think so. And, you know, those are the concerns that led the Biden administration not to weigh in on the side of the students. I don't think that the Biden administration is uh, hostile to free speech, but Mm -hmm. it did raise these concerns, especially about harassment and bullying, and noted that, you know, a lot of bullying and harassment takes place off campus. It takes place on the Internet, but it has ripple effects on campus and schools need uh, a free hand or at least broad leeway to deal with that. The court just didn't really get into that issue today. I think the court said, look, this one's an easy case for us. Hmm. You can come back to us with a harder one next year, but <laughs> we're just going to stick with the facts for now. You know, is it my imagination or, or have, have many of the rulings of late uh, under the Roberts court been even narrower than they have been historically? And, and if so, is that part of Robert's strategy to somehow, you know, cobble together more unified opinions uh, on these cases rather than uh, fall back on the six to three verdicts uh, that, that we might have expected all the time? Yeah, I mean, maybe not in this case, because Clarence Thomas was the one dissenter. And, and for the most part, there was a lot of consensus. But yeah, what, what was his problem? What, what, well, was, Clarence- what was he? What did? Yeah. Clarence Thomas does not believe that public school students have any free speech rights. Uh, And I guess to his credit, he has been consistent about this. He simply does not believe that uh, a student at a public school has any First Amendment rights separate from their parents. In fact, he doesn't believe that in general that minors, that children under the age of 18, have any freedom of speech under the Constitution. Even outside of school, not during hours, whatever they say, if the school doesn't like it, Clarence Thomas backs up the school to take disciplinary action against the student. That's kind of amazing. And the government could as well under under his theory, yes. And so I cut off your answer to my uh, initial question on on are we seeing narrower uh, rulings to to try and get a more unified court here of late, or is that my imagination? So overall, the, I think the answer is yes, and the best example of this is in Fulton versus Philadelphia, the mm-hmm. same-sex foster care case, um, where you, you saw the court issue a decision that, as Alito correctly said in dissent, um, or, or in this partial dissent, basically disappeared as soon as it was issued. I mean, it was so ridiculously narrow mm-hmm. that it almost said nothing at all, and it really did not apply to the broad range of non-discrimination laws, uh, and, and probably didn't make very many people happy, uh, but the six justices who joined it were happy because they avoided this issue and ducked major controversy. Yeah, and I, I suspect the liberals in the minority here are going to be uh, somewhat happy uh, at times with these cases, because now it's not necessarily about how many they're going to lose, but how badly they're going to lose it if they can narrow uh, how much damage this right-wing majority will do in the court, then that's a sort of victory for the minority in many of these cases. I, I think it's still a bitter pill for them to swallow. Mm-hmm. I don't think that they agreed with a word of Chief Justice Roberts' opinion in Fulton, but you know what? <laughs> they are averting disaster. They're doing yeah. damage control, and that's probably the best we can hope for. Okay, i got to take a quick break here, uh, Mark, and, be, and I want to ask about what's still to come from the court and the really big decision 
coming from the court that is has definitely not yet been made. Uh, but very quickly, there was one more, <clears throat> excuse me, one more case today concerning the Federal Housing Finance Agency, FHFA. It was formed to oversee the mortgage giants Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac after the Great Recession. The court decided it does not need to be dismantled, but the president, May, does have the right to replace the head of the agency who was initially appointed by Donald Trump. Is that important? Is that a big case? Uh, It's really only important insofar as it has allowed uh, President Joe Biden to fire Donald Trump's uh, director of the FHFA, who was a holdover, clinging to his job, which he used to try to deregulate Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and the entire federal mortgage market, Mm. which undermines the very mission of the agency he was leading. Uh, I am very glad to see that almost as soon as that decision from the Supreme Court came down, Joe Biden exercised his newfound authority and canned Mark Calabria uh, and will replace him with a liberal. So there you go. Three out of four cases today, not bad. We'll take it. A quick break, and we're back with uh, Mark Joseph Stern for a quick segment on the big decisions still to come from the U.S. Supreme Court. I'm Brad Friedman, and you are listening to The Bradcast. Hey, this is Desi. The Bradcast and the Green News Report survive thanks to you and your support. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate today to help us stay independent every day over your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. Bye, 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 Briar. Maybe. We'll see. Maybe. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Yes. Well, before we get to Briar, there's one more big decision uh, day to come. I'm speaking with Mark Joseph Stern, legal reporter from Slate.com. Uh, one more big decision day to come on uh, on Friday, I believe, Mark Joseph Stern. So before we discuss what could be the biggest decision of this term, what are the cases still to be handed down on the final decision day of this term? What is left? And should we be very concerned? Yeah, we should be. So a couple big cases on my radar. Uh, The first is Americans for Prosperity versus Bonta. And this is uh, a ridiculous case, I think, that involves a California law that simply requires uh, charities, including very political and partisan charities like the Koch's American for Prosperity, mm-hmm. to uh, provide the identities of their high-dollar donors to the California Attorney General, mm-hmm. who is uh, investigating charitable fraud, which is actually very common and a huge problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I say high-dollar donors, I literally mean people who've donated more than like $300,000 mm-hmm. in the case of Americans for Prosperity. Uh, and this information is not revealed to the public. It's really just a kind of run-of-the-mill disclosure law to prevent a very serious and common kind of fraud. But the Supreme Court is probably going to block it and say it's unconstitutional. Really? Wow. That would be to law enforcement, basically. They're, They're blocking this information from law enforcement, if I understand it? Yeah, that's exactly it's right. The Attorney and, General, uh, yeah. As bad as it is, I think the, the worst part would be the precedent that it sets, because uh, this case, a lot of it is really kind of a stalking horse for the debate about disclosure laws 
in election context, mm-hmm. specifically uh, election donors, campaign donors, people who give lots of money to political figures and to political parties. Um, you know, the so conservative justices have for years been indicating that those disclosure laws might be unconstitutional, that it violates the First Amendment to reveal the names of people who give thousands, if not millions of dollars to uh, political parties and, mm-hmm. and candidates. And I think a bad decision in this case will lead pretty swiftly to the fall of a lot of federal and state disclosure laws that give us a a peek into who exactly is financing our election. That's disturbing, uh, particularly as the Democrats are slugging it out right now to try to pass an election uh, and campaign finance reform bill that would make it uh, make more disclosure of the dark money. And you can almost see the right-wingers on the Supreme Court licking their chops to find it unconstitutional the moment that it is passed, if it can be passed. Uh, that's a, a, an even bigger question. But all right, the uh, biggest decision, uh, Mark Joseph Stern, at least in, in my opinion, we'll see how you feel about this, is whether 82-year-old Justice Stephen Breyer, nominated to the court and seated by uh, B- President Bill Clinton back in 1994, whether he's going to announce his retirement this year, whether he's going to pull a Ruth Bader Ginsburg and risk losing yet another seat to a Republican if Republicans succeed in winning back the Senate next year before Breyer steps down or, God forbid, dies. I know a lot of um, progressives are calling on Breyer to uh, step down right now. Where are you on that? And frankly, where is Justice Breyer on that today? So I want him to step down yesterday. Um, I have written that I do not think that Mitch McConnell will ever confirm, or or Republicans, uh, if they Mm -hmm. control the Senate, will ever confirm another Democratic president Supreme Court nominee. Um, I think Breyer needs to step down at this moment. If you're listening, Steve, please (laughs) go. Thank you for your service. Um, But my my colleague, Dahlia Lithwick, wrote, I think, a smart piece in which she noted that Stephen Breyer is, and I say this lovingly, uh, delusional. He has this delusional naivete about the court and about politics and seems to just fundamentally not understand the position that he is in to potentially really wreck the court forever. Um, And so I don't know that all of this pressure is really going to help get him off the bench. I think he's going to have to make this decision himself, and it doesn't look like he's stepping down this term. You know, and he's... I, I, I mean, he's not delusional. He's a, he's a very smart man. He obviously knows what's going on. He probably understands it more than just about anyone in the country since he's in the middle of it now with, you know, on a six to three court. I don't understand how he could not understand that. I guess you would have to conclude he's delusional or something. Are, are we sure he's not? Would he have uh, given signals that he was, he was going to step down by now if, in fact, he was going to? No, not necessarily. You know, this is totally under the the control of the individual justices. They make the decision. They time it however they want. But traditionally, they come down at the end of the term. So just keep your eyes peeled after the last decision is handed down. We should know within a few days of that moment whether he's going to stick around for another term. And by the way, the reason that you wrote about Mitch McConnell, uh, you know, never seating another democratically nominated uh, Supreme Court justice again is because that's pretty much what Mitch McConnell has recently said, correct? 
Yes, I mean Mitch McConnell has said that if uh, if a, if an opening comes in 2024, he won't allow it to be filled. He won't even confirm that he would fill one in 2023. And I don't think if the Senate flipped tomorrow and Breyer retired the day after, that Mitch McConnell would ever let Biden fill that seat. I, you know, he's saying it. I think we should believe him. Mark Joseph Stern, uh, always a delight, sort of, speaking with you. Actually, in this case, uh, you know, not a terrible decision day overall. Mark Joseph Stern covers the uh, law, court system, Supreme Court, and everything else at Slate.com. You can find his work over there, and you should. It's just some of the very best writing on uh, on the Supreme Court and law overall uh, makes it clear. You don't have to be a, an attorney or a constitutional expert to understand understand it. Uh, he's really good. You can also follow him on the Twitters at MJS underscore DC. Mark, uh, thank you so much, my friend, and maybe we'll be talking soon. Thank you so much. For better or for worse, I think we will be. Oh, boy. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, brother. Okay. By the way, I, I pulled up that clip of uh, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell talking ah. to radio show host Hugh Hewitt saying that in 2024, yep. if a vacancy should occur, he will not confirm any Biden nominee. Mm-hmm. If you regain the majority in 2022, would the rule that you applied in 2016 so the Scalia vacancy apply in 2024 to any vacancy that occurred then? No, I think it's highly unlikely. In fact, no, I don't think <laughs> either party, if it controlled, if it were different from the president, would confirm a Supreme Court nominee in the middle of an election. Oh, yeah, well, he's just making that whole thing up about, well, if it's a different party in the middle of an election. Yeah, he invented that. Right. Uh, in the meantime, he, you know, was had no problem putting Amy jamming Amy Coney Barrett onto the court uh, after destroying the filibuster just eight days before the 2020 election. Yeah, and, and even worse, yeah. he says that if he regains control of the majority in 2022, he may not confirm any Biden nominee in even 2023. If you are back as the Senate Republican leader, and I hope you are, and a Democrat retires at the end of 2023 and they're 18 months, would they get a fair shot at a hearing? Not a radical, but a normal mainstream liberal. Well, we'd have to wait and see what what happens. Yeah, we'd have to wait and see. He ain't. He's right. Mark uh, Justice Turner is right. Mitch there McConnell will, will never, if they are, if Republicans control the Senate, they will not ever, ever approve another Democratic president's nominee to the Supreme Court. Yep. All right, got to get out. Uh, thanks again to Mark. Thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen. Thanks to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, you can download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. My thanks to those of you uh, who stop by bradblog.com slash donate. We are on your public airwaves thanks only to your support. We are listener-supported radio, so thank you bradblog.com slash donate drop me email if you like i am bradcast at bradblog.com on the facebooks and the twitters i am simply the brad blog i will see you there until we see you here next time i'm brad friedman good luck world